The Way BK podcast is dedicated to pursuing and promoting a true understanding of Jesus Christ and the transformation He provides for all who submit to Him to live in a way that is pleasing to God as revealed in the Bible. Let's join our hosts as they discuss The Way. Joining us today, we're going to be back in the book of 1 Timothy, where we've been digging in for a few weeks now. Um, it's a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy after he left them, left him um, with the saints in Ephesus and left him there to help t- the church to stay on track, to, to avoid falling into false doctrines uh, and avoid allowing people to continue teaching uh, false doctrines. Um, he is left there to help build up the church and strengthen the the body there. Um, in fact, uh, Paul says, and we've emphasized this a lot, but Paul says in chapter three and verse 14 that he's hoping to come soon, but that he's writing in advance these instructions so that if he's delayed, uh, Timothy, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And so what we've been looking at this throughout this letter is uh, just how these teachings, how these uh, words that Paul has written to Timothy help us to understand how, how to conduct ourselves in the household of God, how to, how to live as uh, the family of God um, under his rule and under his lordship and authority. Um, and we've discussed a lot of various different things, including uh, church leadership, gender roles, um, you know, uh, how to deal with false teaching and how to oppose it. Uh, we've talked a good bit about the true gospel um, and uh, about how to uh, handle the situation when, when people fall away from the true gospel or abandon the, the, the faith. And, uh, and the last uh, week or two, we've discussed, the last couple of times we've been on here, we've discussed um, how to serve as a good minister of Christ Jesus, how to grow as a, a servant of Christ, and then also how to handle our relationships within the family between um, older men, older women, how to treat uh, younger men and, and, and younger women as well in the church. And we left off in the conversation about how to make sure to take care of those who are widows who are really in need. Um, and that's where we're going to pick it up today. I don't know if there's other things you want to remind us of, Ben, before we jump in here um, to the text today. I mean, I think it's a super good breakdown. I think the only thing that's worth saying is today, at least I find um, a number of things that Paul talks about in the next few verses to be kind of almost like a grocery list. You know, it's like, hey, this thing. Also, don't forget this thing. Oh, yeah. And this thing and that thing. Um, I think, though, this section is pretty helpful in reminding us. And you kind of alluded to this already. But at the very beginning of the letter, Paul told Timothy, hey, man, don't forget, I left you there and I gave you this charge to make sure to watch out for people who are messing things up. Um, but I think the tricky part is, I think when you read through First Timothy, it seems like whoever it was that was messing up things in the church in Ephesus, it wasn't super blatant or obvious. Maybe it was to Timothy. I don't know, but I don't think it was to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, even though some things would have been, Paul's actually going to say that some things are evident. But I think the fact that he had to say some things are evident means that some of the stuff that was going on, it was just kind of complex to figure out, is this right? Is this wrong? How am I supposed to handle? I think something feels off about how this guy's handling things or how this lady's doing her business or what the church is doing with this or whatever. Um, 
but I can't really put my finger on what the problem is or how to handle it. And um, I, I think that's just probably something good to say up front is that happens a lot. There's just things that are kind of tricky and kind of hard to figure out sometimes in serving God and especially serving God in the complexities of relationships. And we're all trying to do the right thing. We're all trying to figure out what the right thing is. We're all trying to deal with our own issues and trying to help each other with our issues and all this stuff. And uh, that can just get tricky sometimes. And a lot of this letter speaks to that. I know a lot of the sections just seem like really clear, like, bam, here's a teaching. But when you think about, man, dealing with that widow stuff, that would have been tricky. Like telling some lady, hey, you don't quote unquote qualify for this. That would have been really hard. Or talking to some guy who wants to serve as a deacon and saying, hey, brother, like you got to change some stuff. You really shouldn't be serving as a deacon. That would be hard. Um, A lot of the discussions would be. And I think that includes some of the things we'll talk about today. Yeah, for sure. Sure. All right. So how far you want to read today? Uh, you want to pick it? What verses were you thinking we'd start with? Start in verse uh, 17 and go down? Yeah, I think we do 17. If we get through like 6-5, we can start there and then see what we do from there. All right. Very good. Why don't we start with a prayer and then we'll uh, read through the scripture. I'll turn it over to Ben. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the light and the truth that is in it. We pray, oh God, as we open up your word now that you would teach us, that you would guide us, that you would grant us wisdom, knowledge, and discernment, um, that we might be able to uh, be pleasing to you and be be faithful to do your will. Um, I pray, oh God, may you guide us, may you um, instruct us, may you help us to see what you want us to see in your word. May you uh, open our ears to hear what you have to say to us and our hearts to receive it. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Chapter five, verse 17, Paul writes to Timothy and he says this, he says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain and the worker deserves his wages. Um, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that others, the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. And don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. Do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking water only and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Uh, The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. Now, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they're fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. And if anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in strife, envy, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction. 
between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. All right, so I'll just kind of, I mean, help me because I may be missing something here. As far as like topics here that we should give attention to, I think, I think he like hits a few different topics, but he gives us a couple of statements that it kind of serve as almost, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, man, footers, right? You know, when you're like building something, like you pour concrete in a few spots or whatever and kind of get things started um, that way. Uh, concrete footers. He kind of does that a little bit in this text, but as far as subjects, you got the stuff about elders, how to regard elders, whether they're doing a good job or a bad job. Right. Um, he's got some just like personal um, charges advice to yeah. Timothy. I mean, some of it's like, Hey, watch out for this, do this. Some of it's like, Hey man, you're sick. Just go ahead and take some wine with, and we'll get into all that and what he's saying and maybe what he's not saying a little bit too. Um, and then people who are, uh, sinners versus 24 and 25. He talks a little bit about the slave master relationship, which was a, just such a big social issue of their day because of the way the economy was set up and the way society was set up that Christians had to live under um, and participate in, in some way. Uh, and then he's got the thing about uh, controversies in uh, verses three through five. So I don't know. Is that pretty much the main, main topics you see here that, uh, that he hits on it? I miss anything. I mean, yeah, I think it's, it, it, it is kind of what you said earlier. It seems kind of, some of this seems kind of like random, like, Hey, what, you know, let, let, let me just, as he's getting close to the end of the letter, let me right. remind you of all these things that I needed to say to you, you know? Um, yeah. It's like when you're writing an email, you're like, all right, this is super way too long. I just need to give a little punch list here at the end to get it done, you know, and finish up. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know about you. I'll, I'll kind of throw out a couple to me of just like overarching statements that I think help kind of frame up all the stuff we're talking about, going to be talking about. And I think it's worth tapping into these things now, just so we have them in the back of our mind, as far as some of the uh, just general perspectives uh, in terms of all these relationships and the way Timothy would conduct himself. Uh, one is in verse 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. I mean, that's a big, he's, he's on a big stage here. This is a big thing. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, um, or I think prejudice, I think some say, I mean, it's basically the same thing. Do nothing from partiality. So maybe we can just kind of synthesize verse 21. The charge is do nothing from partiality. In a lot of ways, it's kind of a companion to chapter one and verse five. The aim of our charge is love from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. Don't treat people differently just because they're your buddy or they annoy you or they're old or they're young or they're you know, Scythian or barbarian or whatever the racial things were in Ephesus that he'd be dealing with, um, all that kind of thing. Don't treat people differently because of that. Treat everybody the same. Treat everybody the right way in God's eyes. Um, a lot of these like relationship questions are, are going to relate to that concept. Um, the other one, I'll just, there's really, uh, I guess two others, and then you may see some others, you may want to expand on some of these. Um, Verses 24 and 25, in some ways, is kind of an exhortation. It's also just a general statement like, hey, man, listen, even among brethren, I think the implication is some people's sins are going to be really obvious. And their good works are, too. Just keep your eyes open. You're going to see some good stuff. You're going to see some bad stuff. Respond to it whenever you see it. It's kind of a, goes hand in hand with the don't be prejudicial. Don't show partiality. When you see bad stuff, call it out. When you see good stuff, call it out. Um, and, and don't be afraid of that. 
Uh, and even if somebody is doing bad stuff and you can't see it, no, it'll come out and the good stuff too. It, it'll come out. So um, maybe this is a, don't get too worked up or too nervous about everything going one way or the other. It's all going to come out in the wash one way or the other with, uh, with whatever's going on. And then the, the last one, just as far as overarching statements to me is the last line of verse two. I think this is kind of just a general statement, almost about everything he's been talking about, particularly the things related to um, the slave master relationship, teach and urge these things. Timothy was going to have to take time to uh, give instruction, to explain, to answer questions. That means he was going to have to think through questions and not only teach them, explain them in some sort of academic way, but urge them, press them, say, hey, guys, this is the right thing to do and we need to do it. So to me, those are kind of some of the overarching things that will relate to almost everything. I know each one of those had a little micro context that they're related to, but I think those are great exhortations for us when we're dealing with complex things. Don't show partiality in your judgments about things and your relationships to people and the way you treat people, all that stuff. Don't show partiality. Hey, know the good stuff and the bad stuff. Either it's going to be obvious and you're going to see it and don't be afraid of it when you see it, just call it what it is. And even if you can't see it, it's going to come out one way or the other. Uh, and thirdly, keep on speaking about true things and urging the truth in the lives of those around you. So I, I don't know. What do you think about those? What do you think is worth kind of expanding on on those um, or maybe some other similar kinds of just overarching statements you see here? Yeah, so some of that is comforting, like the part about 24 and 25. I mean, some of that is uh, in in some ways like, hey, you know, what's done in the dark is going to come into the light eventually. Like, hey, it's going to become known. I think there's a sense in which that's comforting as a, as a, as a leader or as a servant or as a minister, because there's so much that you don't really have control over. Um, It's good. It's good to be reminded that, Hey, I don't have to have control because ultimately the Lord's in control and and he's going to make sure all the wrongs get righted and all the, uh, all those who, who do right will eventually be revealed for the good that they've done. Um, So I think there's there's a sense in which that, that part is comforting to me. Um, but there's also like a sobering part of, uh, of these charges too. Not just the fact that, Hey, if I'm, if I'm sinning in secret, it's going to come into the light, but also the, the, there's a sobering charge for Timothy that um, I'm going to have to teach and I'm going to have to urge some things that are probably not going to go over so well. Um, at least not all this stuff I would, I would imagine would, would be, would be equally well received. Especially the teachings in particular, Paul refers to right there. Those would not appreciate those. I don't want to talk. I don't want to talk about them right now. We're not even talking about us. We're talking about an economy and people thousands of years ago. And I don't want to talk about them. Yeah. 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 And then, you know, the whole thing about elders too. I mean, some of these elders that will probably would have been much older than Timothy and, uh, and you are going to have to rebuke somebody like it in front of like a bunch of people because they're not responding. I mean, that's, that's uh there's there's a there's definitely an element to this it's a pretty difficult calling that uh timothy's being called to and so i think you do have these kind of statements in between uh the exhortation and teaching to kind of remind timothy of what his calling is and what his purpose is uh, as a minister so which we keep coming back to it but it's because paul's framed it up this way and a lot of paul's letters are framed this way it's a complex thing living in a family even with people that everybody's behaving their best, everybody loves each other. Human beings are complex beings and therefore the interactions we have are going to have complexity to them a lot of times. Um, and this definitely highlights that. So let's, let's get into the elder stuff. That's kind of the first thing he hits on. 
Um, we'll do the positive stuff first, then we'll get to some of the things you were talking about that are kind of the more, the more challenging parts here. Um, so just for anybody who hasn't been with us, you can go back and tap back into, um, I don't know, three, four weeks ago, maybe something like that, about a month ago, maybe, uh, we talked about chapter three where he laid out, Hey, listen, this is the kind of character that elders need to live up to. It's interesting. And I don't really, I'm not really interested in arguing this point. If you got a killer answer that I'm, I'm going to be happy to just say amen and keep it moving. I don't, I don't know, but I have heard people suggest there's two possibilities of what's going on at first Timothy three. One is, is that he's saying, Hey, for like prospective elders, people were thinking about making elders. This is what, these are the kinds of things they need to match up to. And I do think that's what that chapter is useful for. But another way of reading that chapter is that it's also a way for elders to keep on being checked up on. In other words, somebody becomes an elder it's not just like, oh, congratulations, you've received this office and you hold it in perpetuity for the rest of your life. Don't worry about it. Actually, chapter three was kind of like, hey, are your elders this way? Because if they're not, maybe they shouldn't really be elders. On the other hand, if they are men who are self-controlled and gentle and husbands of one wife and all that, all the kind of stuff that's listed in chapter three, man, and if, they're, if they not only meet those quote unquote qualifications, but they're actually doing a good job shepherding, caring for teaching, um, being good examples, like caring for God's people like they're supposed to, man, honor those dudes. Don't just, don't just acknowledge them as elders and put them in that role, but you better talk them up and let people know how good of a job they're doing. Not in some sort of like sinful pride inflating kind of way, but they're worthy of double honor. And I think if you just had that phrase, double honor, you just say, oh, okay, so I honor them more than normal. But actually he's saying like, hey, if there's a dude who's really doing a good job being an elder, tell him he can quit his pottery business and just the church should provide for him financially. I think at least that's what he's saying in verses uh, 18 and 19, where he says, especially the ones who are laboring and preaching and teaching, free them up to be able to do that all the time and provide them whatever support they need. Verse 18 says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, quoting from, I think that's Deuteronomy 21. I'm even misremembering that. Um, and the laborer deserves his wages. This is the same stuff that Paul used in first Corinthians chapter nine to speak about, Hey, I didn't take a paycheck from you guys, Corinthians, cause I didn't want y'all to ever question what was going on with me. Uh, that maybe I was trying to steal from you or something. But it wasn't that I wasn't allowed to. I had the right to ask for money from you guys because I was working for the Lord on your behalf. I, you know, I was serving you. I just chose not to, so you wouldn't question it. So, anyways, I just think this is a good um, uh, reminder of like the types of leaders that we that we need in churches of the Lord. That um, that especially those who are men who are able should be striving for. That churches should be looking for and looking to exalt. We should be looking to tear people down and tell people all how how bad they are. If somebody's qualified to serve as an elder and he's doing a good work, encourage that, honor that. All right. I went too long on that. I don't know. What do you think about that whole stuff about uh, honoring the elders and stuff? Yeah. And I think part of the way that that's done, as you pointed out, um, pastor is um, through respect and, and listening and submitting to them. Um, we certainly see that all throughout the New Testament scriptures. Another part of that, though, is too, is also taking care of them, just like they're taking care of these uh, other widows who are serving the church. Um, so in this case, it's not, it, these are not widows, but it is certainly right and good 
for elders who are doing that hard work, straining in the word and in teaching, like they're straining to be servants of the gospel for the church to relieve part of that burden by saying, Hey, we're going to take care of this. Uh, so that you don't have to worry about the financial aspect of this. So you can be free to just focus on the good work of shepherding that you're doing and the good work of preaching and teaching that you're doing. Um, man, uh, I think a lot of churches would be, many churches would be a lot healthier uh, if, if they obeyed this teaching and, you know, a lot, I mean, I, I just think about my experience. I see, I've seen a lot of elders who are working 50, 60 hour week jobs um, and then trying to shepherd a church on top of that. And just how difficult that is to do that in a healthy way. Um, a lot of that could be relieved if the church would just say, Hey, let's all uh, sacrifice a little bit more so that this, this brother, this, this elder, this uh, pastor could, could devote themselves fully to teaching and preaching and not have to worry about uh, making sure that their family is provided for in other means. So. Amen. Yeah, super amen to that. There's plenty of complexities of living as a Christian in the world, of living in God's family, of trying to serve in God's family. We should try to alleviate those. Elders are doing that for the sheep. Sheep should try to do that for the, for the shepherds as well. I love that. All right. Um, but not all guys are good. Yeah. Not all, not all shepherds are doing the work like they ought to work. Um, but I, I really love verses 19 through 22 base. I mean, really 19 through 25 are all about the question of, all right, what happens when there's an elder who's misbehaving uh, or might be misbehaving, which I think this is a real window into probably what was going on in the church in Ephesus. Paul had warned in Acts chapter 20 that in this church where Timothy was now serving, that one day people from among the eldership would lead the church in the wrong direction. And it seems like whether that was already happening or it was going to happen soon or Paul was concerned it was going to happen, he's, he's got it on his mind. And it seems like it was a question that needed to be addressed. Um, this is Verse 19 is so great, not only dealing with elders, but just in general in life, man. And I mean, you and I see it all the time. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I know I fall short in this and forgetting this sometimes. Um, but so many conflicts are people not paying attention to verse 19. Do not admit a charge. And I'm just going to say against anyone except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And by the way, I'm not saying that. The scriptures say that on a number of cases. And he says, especially with an elder, do not take any kind of charge. Somebody comes complaining about an elder did this or that or the third thing. Don't take that unless there's, there's ample evidence for it. Um, unless there's, there's um, good reason to, uh, to believe it, whether there be two or three witnesses. I don't know. That means there literally has to be two or three human beings who witnessed the same event. But you don't just take one person's disparaging word against someone else. Um, we've got to be fair. And uh, that means we're ready to embrace, yeah, you know what? Elders can do bad things. And if they do it, they need to be corrected for that. But they also can hurt people's feelings because they're going to have to, you know, get up in the sheep's face sometimes and let them know how they need to change their life. And some people can flip that around. So be careful about that. Um, but then the rest, he's going to talk about the scenario of when an elder actually is doing something wrong. But I mean, what do you want to say about verse 19? I mean, like I said, it's, it's just a great, um, great tenet to live by in all your relationships and in all accusations that arise in the workplace, in the family, in the church, in, you know, the public sphere, whatever. Um, what do you think about verse 19? Well, it's part, and I would say it's part of honoring them is uh, to say that I'm not just going to quickly believe somebody who comes and slanders them and just assume that what they're saying is true. I mean, if, if a shepherd is doing his job right, 
there are going to be many cases in which he's going to be making people angry, uh, making people upset by simply saying what Jesus said or by simply teaching what the apostles taught or acting like the apostles acted. Um, so therefore, part of honoring them is, hey, we've trusted this person enough. We've seen the character this person has enough to know, to entrust ourselves to them. So we're not going to be quick to just uh, believe anybody who comes in slandering them or anybody who comes up with some sort of slander. I will say, too, I've, I've seen the opposite of this or, or maybe problems swing the other direction, too, in churches where even when and I guess this gets to uh, to verse 20. I mean, go. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Where where what 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 can happen in some churches is that elders are so highly regarded that no accusation is to be brought towards them rest in any kind of health way, regardless of how many witnesses there are of it. Um, and uh, man, I mean, it's like almost every month in the news, there's another big, uh, big story about a pastor or an elder or somebody who, uh, who has used their power and their authority um, and their role that they've been given to exploit other women or to, uh, to take advantage of stealing or robbing or doing who knows. Um, yeah, all kinds of, of, of terrible things. And, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, I think every part of this needs to be more seriously obeyed because, uh, because what happens in those cases is if you're not, if, if nobody's able to ever bring an accusation against uh, an elder, then it's easy for uh, the wolves who are who, have, who are claiming to be shepherds to end up leading the flock astray, and you can do a whole lot of damage to the church of God. Um, so there's got to be accountability for elders, and I think that's what Paul's laying out here is how to hold an elder accountable in a healthy way while also honoring them uh, because they haven't been put there, you know, carelessly or haphazardly um, in that role. Yeah, absolutely. And we could probably say the same just for anybody in a local church that gains respect. Could be some godly woman, you know, who who are, who's been godly in the past, at least, you know, or a preacher, or just somebody, you know. Um, but it definitely happens with with uh, or can happen with elders. Uh, I think what it is is we can come to almost fear or reverence people, and that's because like the line between honoring someone to whom honor is due and reverencing them to where we can't believe that anything they could ever do could possibly be wrong that's a fine line, you know, like it's easy to cross that line to where you just, you're not really honoring them anymore. You're kind of worshiping them. I think that's why in verse 20, he says, whenever there are, you know, okay, Hey, look, be really careful. Honor the ones who deserve that honor. Be really careful not to receive accusations unless there's ample evidence, multiple witnesses to the, whatever the charge may be of what somebody's doing. But once it's confirmed and if they persist in sin, he says in verse 20, really specifically, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And I think that's a really striking statement. He's saying, like, in other words, don't handle this privately. If it's someone who is, for lack of a better term, a public figure in a local church, which I mean, that could mean like somebody that 25 people know. So I mean, we're not talking about like a public figure like we may think about it in our like Internet age and stuff. But still, on a, on a local in this family of God in Ephesus, um, you make sure everybody knows about it. 
if they're going to persist in this sin. You don't keep it secret because to your point, two things happen. You, you made the point that what that means is it just empowers other wolves to take advantage of the sheep for people to misbehave and to take advantage of people. On it. What it also does, it teaches the sheep to start acting like wolves. And then all of a sudden you got in this family, in this household, not people who are characterized by love, which is the aim of our charge, chapter one and verse five. That's what the whole thing's about. It's people who are motivated by selfishness and self-interest. People are motivated by greed. People are motivated by lies and hypocrisy and brutality and all the bad stuff, all the predatory things that wolves do. He says, you can't, you can't allow that among the people who are supposed to serve as examples because it'll get down in and infect the whole flock. And then you got everybody all messed up. So this has got to be corrected quickly. And he kind of extends that. I mean, we talked about keep these rules without prejudice, do nothing for partiality. I think that goes on both sides. There may have been an elder that kind of annoyed Timothy, or maybe a guy that Timothy happened to butt heads a lot with. It wasn't like they were like, either one of them was wrong. It's just they had disagreements about how the work should be done. Well, Timothy, you honor that brother. If he's laboring and preaching and teaching, he's a faithful elder, honor him, you know, and encourage others to honor him. On the other hand, there may be some guys, your buddy, and you play cards with him and you guys, you know, go watch whatever sports things they did in Ephesus. I don't know. But then it comes out that he's sleeping around with some woman in the church or he's embezzling the church or he's just being a jerk to people. He's just kind of sweet talking you all the time because you're the preacher. Don't don't treat him any differently just because he's your buddy. Don't show partiality. You got to treat everybody fairly and rightly. And in verse 22, I think this phrase, do not be uh, hasty in the laying on of hands. That could go both ways. That could mean laying hands. As, I mean, we, we say I'm going to lay hands, meaning like I'm upset with somebody. We're about to fight. Um, I don't think that's probably what he's talking about here. I think he's probably talking about the positive sense. Don't be quick to appoint someone as an elder, lay hands on them as a way of sort of um, confirming their leadership and their role in the church. Don't do that too quickly. This is a serious business of those who serve in leadership. So be really careful about that so that you don't participate in the sins of other people who are doing all kinds of things they shouldn't be doing. Yeah. Yeah. So the instruction here is part of, partly about you know how to how to keep uh, yourself pure and make sure that you're not being stained by the conduct of others. The other, but it's not just about you and your conduct. It's also about the effect that this person is going to have on the church. Therefore, address address it in in the presence of all, so that everybody can see that uh, that this um, this is sinful. And that it's not okay in the sight of God. And if you think about like so much of the problem that happens in churches, it, it comes from a lack of being willing to address those who persist in sin. And so what that teaches the church, even though we wouldn't like to think we're teaching the church by that. But if, if there's an ongoing sin and a person persisting in sin and it never gets addressed, what that teaches the church is that it's okay. Like sin is okay. Therefore, you know, you can, you know, you don't really have to deal with that. You don't really have to address that in some kind of a serious way. But when it is addressed and when it's addressed in the public presence of all, particularly when it's a person in leadership and it's and, and, and that is addressed in the presence of all, um, it brings us it brings a sobriety to the church that is that is lacking and needed. Um, and a remind it reminds the church of their of the, that we are standing in the presence of God. Um, and in the presence of Christ and the presence of the uh, elect angels. And we need to make sure that we act like it, that we conduct ourselves in a way that's pleasing to him. Yeah.
So I was thinking as you were talking, this may be a stupid detour, but I, I, I'm wondering if we should take like just a really like practical detour here for just a second. Talking about these principles, especially this idea of we need to keep ourselves pure from the sins of others um, among what's supposed to be God's people. Uh, I mean, it's not, it's not rare for us to have people ask uh, or for us to even feel the need to encourage people sometimes to evaluate their church affiliation, right? Like the, the, the group they're working with. I, I'm even thinking about, um, I mean, I, I mean, even here on uh, online, we've gotten people reach out and say like, Hey, I'm thinking about leaving my church. What do you guys think about that? Right. Well, first off, uh, generally the answer is like, Hey, probably not like that. You like settle down. Like that's usually not the answer in the new Testament. We actually see whenever there's sins in the church, um, the way to handle it is first off to address it. To, well, may I say, investigate it, see if the claims are true, right? Um, the whole thing about finding out, are there multiple witnesses to this? Is this a real thing? That's the right. first step. The second step is um, addressing it uh, directly. This is really parallel to Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus says, hey, if there's someone in sin, you, you go address it with them. It seems like that's what Paul is telling Timothy to do here as well. Address this. We might even throw in including those who have some sort of, um, this is maybe a dirty word to use unless it's used in love, but some sort of power in the church. And that's a fact. Some people have greater influence, we might say, or power in a, in a local church. Well, if I know about something that's going on and I don't feel like I'm able to help with it, um, I can find someone who's godly, who, who's of influence, who can help with it. Here he's given special instructions to Timothy as an evangelist to watch out for this stuff. Okay, so I investigate, is this a real thing? Part of that means an investigation in my own heart. Am I being prejudicial? Am I being unfair with this situation? Or am I being fair? Um, Do other people see the same thing that I'm seeing? Not like I'm conjuring up gossip, but, you know, am am I wrong? Like, I think I see this, right? So I'm going to investigate it. I'm going to address it. I'm going to include someone of influence who may be able to uh, round off some some coarse edges and, you know, kind of take care of some things that maybe I'm not able to. Um, but I do think this passage does show us, and there's a number of places in the New Testament speaking the same way. Paul would say in places, sometimes divisions do have to exist. We cannot be made, we can be made impure if we continue walking with and participating in the sins of others. That doesn't mean we cut bait and run from people who are seeking after God. But at some point, there comes a point where we say, we're not walking in the same direction. I'm walking in the purity of holiness, and you're walking in something else. You're walking in the world. You're walking in sin. And uh, but but I think this passage shows there's a lot of steps before you get to that point. But know in the back of your mind, there are points in life where that happens. And we don't want to be participating in the sins of others. We want to be helping each other get out of sin so that we can walk in righteousness. I don't really know. Uh, I, I think that's something that comes up a lot. Um, you know, we end up a lot of our dialogue, especially we've been going through the letters for what now, at least a year. Um, a lot of our dialogue has been about mistakes in churches, mistakes in, um, you know, perversions of, of groups of religious groups that would call themselves Christian groups and stuff, but really aren't walking in the, in the Lord's way. Um, so since we talk about that a lot, I think it's worth saying some things just about how to view that practically. What do you think, maybe some of that stuff I said needs to be modified or corrected, or maybe you want to add on some things to that, just about if somebody's sitting there like, man, I think my church is kind of messed up. They're doing some bad, sinful stuff or the leadership's wicked or whatever. Um, what else do you think we can get from this text or just generally from first Timothy about, about that issue? Well, just to emphasize something that you said, that I think you said already, but to press it a little bit more, he's already said in chapter five and verse one, 
don't sharply rebuke an older man, yep. but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers, and the younger women as, all, as sisters in all purity. So the way I go about when I see something wrong in the church, the way I go about it is not just putting everybody on blast uh, and I'm going to stand up in front of the church and tell everybody like, hey, look at what this brother preached. Or look at what this brother said. And that's, you know, it's interesting to me um, the way the two translations that I read, the way they translate verse 20, the first phrase there, those who continue in sin or those who persist in sin, mm -hmm. which makes me think that actually before I go to the whole congregation and rebuke them, um, I'm first going to them privately to try to address this. And, and I think that's where a lot of the breakdown. Yeah. That's where a lot of the breakdown happens is Jesus says, your brother sins. Um, it, then, then you go to him and you address the sin. A lot of times what we think is, well, the brother sinned, he did the wrong thing. So he should be coming to me to tell me like, he's sorry. And they shouldn't have done that. It's on him to address it. Well, Jesus actually flips it around and says, yeah, it's on him to address it, but it's also on you. Like if you, if you know your brothers in sin, you go to them and you go to them in private and you try to win your brother back um, by addressing the sin in private. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that is a healthy way to keep the group together. And then if he doesn't, if he doesn't respond to that, Matthew 18 says, well, then you take another witness or two witnesses and you go and try to win him back. And if he still doesn't deal with it, then you take him before the church. I think you should, we should think of that process here as well. It's not like, oh, well, he's an elder, so I can just blast him because I saw him do this and it was right. wrong. Um, no, privately, I'm going to go and I'm going to address this and I'm going to try to turn him back um, and lead him to repentance. And, and, if, and if he doesn't, if he continues in it, that's when the need comes, hey, we got to make sure everybody knows this is not the way a godly person should live. And even though he may claim or, or, or serve in an office of leadership, um, that does not mean that we have the right to behave this way and it needs to be addressed publicly. Um, then, So I just think that's helpful. Um, a lot of breakdowns happen because we don't want to go face to face, one on one and address somebody who's in sin. So we just let it kind of boil up. And then eventually, a lot of times what happens is we either try to leave quietly or we just at some point explode because we see this evil that's going on that we should be upset about. But because we haven't addressed it in a healthy way, um, we actually end up becoming a part of the problem rather than actually working towards the solution on it. Yeah. So. And you know what? If we knew anybody who treated their nuclear family members that way, right. we'd say, man, that's messed up. Right. Well, okay. If I think that's messed up and how I would treat my wife or my kids or my brother or my mom or whatever, then I should feel the same way about stuff in church. That's right. Look, if my wife or my kids or my mom or my brother was doing some crazy stuff, yeah, I'd have to address it. And yeah, depending on just how crazy it would be, there may have to be some really, really strong exhortations and some wake up calls and some interventions and all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, but man, that's way down the line. And we got to think in those terms. And even when I would do those, it wouldn't be out of spite. It wouldn't be out of negligence. It wouldn't be out of, man, I'm just so tired of you. I'm out of here. It would be out of deep care and concern. And that's got to be our motivation here. Um, yeah. Anyway, that question comes up a lot. Probably anybody who's uh, listening, you may be like, I think you guys are kind of missing something. We probably are. We're doing just a little overview here of this. It's a tough issue. We're happy to talk about it if anybody's dealing with this, but it's certainly not something to be hasty about. That's one of the big things of this whole thing. Don't be hasty about the way you view and ultimately make judgments about your brethren. We got to judge with righteous judgment. Jesus said that, but he also said, be careful how you judge because you're going to be judged the same way that you judge. So what else are you thinking here? That's right.
Well, Christy added in the comments, if the goal is to get is to help others get to heaven, that can only happen when you're trying to help. If you leave without discussion, you miss the opportunity to be of help, which I think she's saying exactly what you said. Um, you know, the, the, you don't just walk out on your family when there's a problem. Or if you do, that says a lot more about you than it does your family. Um, or at least it says there's a big problem with you. Yeah. Um, if there's a problem in the family, we address it and we work to address it. That doesn't mean that there doesn't come a point at which we say, hey, my family has abandoned the Lord, therefore they're no longer the Lord's household. But that's not a judgment I'm going to make about somebody hastily yeah. or about a family hastily. That's a judgment that's going to come through a lot of prayer and fasting and a lot of work to try to uh, make sure and re repair those relationships and reconcile our brothers and sisters to God. Yeah. Ultimately, the, the thing is not these people are annoying me or I don't like how they're handling it, but I don't want to take part in the sins of others. That's what we're worried about. We don't want to that's take part in the sins of others, which, man, that's a heavy burden to like analyze that, to think about whew, if I kind of miss this in either direction, I don't like the implications of it. That's the only explanation I can think for verse 23, honestly, in its placement. Because honestly, you could rip verse 23 out, and this would flow really well. Like if you read verse 22 to verse 24, Vlasta, do not take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Verse 24, the sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So in other words, like, hey, watch out. Don't get mixed up in the sins of others, and you know it when you see it. Whenever you see sin happening, just stay away from it. And you know what? Some other sins are hidden, but they're going to come to, to the light. And when they do, you make sure that you're not participating. Okay, so I see all that. 22 with 24 and 25. Verse 23 is weird because it's like, okay, thanks for the health tip. Which, by the way, maybe there's something good for us to talk about here uh, for everybody. Um, it, it appears that what Paul is exhorting Tim, well, it's not appear. He says what he's exhorting him to do here is to do things for his physical well-being. Mm-hmm. I've heard people say kind of jokingly, but maybe sometimes seriously, like, yeah, yeah, you know, it's a stressful thing for Timothy. So Paul's basically telling him, like, you know, get your buzz on every couple nights because you got to, you know, decompress after all this. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, like, oh, it's so stressful. I mean, maybe he had ulcers because he was stressed out. I don't know. But it wasn't his mind that was messed up. It was his body. And this this drinking of the wine was something. So, I mean, one possibility is, is that Timothy wasn't doing the common practice of mixing wine in the water as a cleansing agent for all the contaminants that were in the water as, I mean, you know, we just take that for granted or we just forget about it sometimes that water in many parts of the world, even today, and certainly most all the world in Paul and Timothy's day was contaminated with fecal matter from animals. And it wasn't clean just from, you know, just being in nature and all this kind of stuff. And we didn't have know, that Poland Springs, man. There weren't no Poland Springs. There wasn't no Essentia, you know, they weren't going and getting like the, the, you know, gallon stuff. It wasn't happening. So the, the wine would be mixed in the water as common practice to make sure it, it you know, would kill the bacteria in the water and boom, you could drink it. You're good to go. Um, and so at, at least Paul is telling Timothy that, that, hey, man, and, and so I don't know, was Timothy being just extra specially careful so nobody could accuse him of drunkenness? And so he's like, I'm not even going to drink wine in my water. Maybe he had misunderstood commands about drunkenness. Think like if he even had a drop of alcoholic content then he was saying, I don't know what it was. Um, but the, the only thing I can uh, figure in this context is it does indicate just how serious Timothy was being about his own purity and about not participating in the sins of others or sins at all. But Paul kind of remembers like mid sentence, like, Oh yeah, by the way, you're a sick dude. Like just put wine in the water, man. Like you're not getting drunk. You're not doing anything wrong by doing that. 
and you're going to need it because we need you healthy. We need you going. So, I, I mean, other than that's about as far as I know to say anything about verse 23. I don't know if you got anything else as far as in the context. By the way, this verse is probably could be part of a whole nother discussion about a Christian's use of alcohol, but that's not the point of us studying through First Timothy here. Um, I will say some people use this to be like, oh, yeah, it's cool to like get a little buzzed. And that's not what it's about. So I don't really that's what it is. But and I don't know what else you want to say about verse 23. You ever written a letter and to somebody, I mean, we don't even do that anymore, but an email and something comes in your mind that, you know, you needed to say to them while you're doing it. So you just kind of write it down before you forget. Um, maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe Paul's like, Hey, let me, before I forget, let me, let me tell you too. Yeah. You, you can, you can take wine for this, for the sake of your stomach. Don't, don't assume that, uh, that you're impure. I mean, that's kind of the way I, I assume. I, I mean, we're obviously assuming a lot here because there's yeah, a lot of said. I assume Timothy's sick, but he's, he's trying to be so careful to make sure that people see him as pure and that his purity of, to, towards God is not affected. That he's like, hey, let me just have water only. I'm, I'm not going even, I'm not even going to take any wine at all. And Paul's like, hey, actually, you know, for the stomach's sake, moments be it'd be wiser if you actually took some of that um so that uh you know to help with whatever so yeah in other words timothy you're not drinking only water you're drinking water with like sewer runoff off the street anyway you might as well use wine instead of just the other bad stuff that's in there you know like mix it with something good i do think this is something good. i don't know if we're gonna have a chance i mean we can obviously talk whatever we want to in the coming weeks but i do think it's probably good for us to point out Part of the reason Paul probably had to make sure Timothy knew, hey, you're not impure if you do this. If, if we're right in our assumption, and I agree with you on that. He has talked so much about purity. And, man, it's so important. I mean, you and I talk about it for ourselves as young ministers of the gospel. All of us as Christians need to be mindful. Of this. I mean, I'm going to miss some, I think. But we've got this statement here in, uh, in verse 22. Keep yourself pure. Do not participate in the sins of others. When you back it up to chapter five and verse two, the way Timothy was supposed to relate to everybody, but maybe especially the younger women in the church was as sisters in all purity. Um, Whenever you back it up to chapter four and is it verse um, 12, he says, let no one despise you. In other words, don't live in a way that people can just brush you off because you're young, but you need to be exemplary in your faith and your conduct and your speech and your love and in your purity. Um, I know I'm missing a couple, obviously the very, very beginning of the, of the whole book, uh, says what we're supposed to be doing is love from a pure heart. Um, there's probably some other reverend, but this idea of purity is just all throughout this letter. And Christians have to be people who are pure from sin, from envy, from selfishness, from worldliness, from greed. He's going to talk about later in the uh, letter as he finishes it out. We can't let any of that stuff contaminate us just like we don't want contaminants in our water. We don't want contaminants in our own character and in the way we're living our lives. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. I mean, it's, that's a critical part of, of like the, the, the role of a minister, if he's going to be commanding and teaching things, if he's going to be urging them to obey things, like his conduct has to be in line with the, the, the teachings as well. And I think that's, you know, what Paul's already said back in chapter four um, was that you show yourself an example um, in, in your conduct, in your love and your faith and your purity, show yourself an example of those who believe that is practice the things that you preach. I mean, there are cases where Jesus will tell people, um, you know, uh, do what they say, but not what they do, you know, cause these are religious leaders out there who are preaching the right thing, but they're living the wrong thing. Um, but that is not the, that is not the kind of teacher that we should aspire to be or the right. kind of teacher that we should aspire to be. 
Um, and there's nothing commendable about that for the person itself. Um, it, 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 in fact, it can do a whole lot of harm to the gospel if uh, I'm not actually living out the things that I'm actually preaching. So, yeah. Yeah. So he's talked about leaders in the church and he pivots a little bit to talk about, um, complex relationships in like the marketplace between brethren in verses one and two of chapter six. It's interesting. He has this thing about like, Hey, bad stuff's going to be obvious. The good stuff is too. And then he turns to just arguably the most common circumstance that every Christian would find themselves in every human being practically in the Roman empire would find themselves in. Um, and not only the most common circumstance, but one where they would be able to demonstrate goodness or badness um, and that is with uh, the, the slave master relationship. I mean, we've talked about this how many times now? We talked about it for sure in Ephesians, for sure in Colossians. We did a, a bit on Philemon. Um, I'm probably forgetting a couple other places where we've talked about that. Um, so I don't know. At this point, I feel like we have our, our thing memorized on when we talk about this, but just some clarifications. The kind of slavery that's being talked about is not the same as American chattel slavery where people were you know, captured. As a matter of fact, First Timothy chapter one specifically condemns kidnapping, which is how the American system of slavery was built on, was kidnapping people. And then, of course, using them as animals, basically treating human beings like animals. Um, and the Torah, you were put to death for that. Kidnappers were put right. to death. So exactly. And, and there's nothing that even comes close to commending that in the New Testament. Um, the Roman era slavery was different. Now, I mean, we can't run away from it. It was still slavery. Okay. So, I mean, I don't want to pretend like it was like, oh, it was really nice. They loved it. I'm not saying that at all. But um, for people who understandably, we get bothered in these passages, correct. Wait, Paul's saying like he was down with the Jim Crow South and before the Jim Crow South, you know, the, the, the slavery, uh, the, the Atlantic slave trade and all this kind of stuff. No, no. Matter of fact, there's tons of things in the new Testament uh, that destabilize. And it actually were the main reason that system was destabilized was because people read their Bibles and were like, Hmm, maybe we shouldn't do this, you know? Um, but anyways, like that was the economic system that these people lived under, even though, uh, even at that time though, the, the new Testament writers, Paul in particular wrote things that destabilize that system as well. In the book of Philemon, he told Philemon, Hey, don't treat Onesimus, your runaway slave, as a slave anymore, treat him as a brother. I don't know that that was a commandment to, I mean, it wasn't a commandment because he says I could command you, but I'm not. I don't know if that was an exhortation to like legally emancipate him or if it was just like, hey, you make sure to not treat him like all the other slave masters. I don't know, but I know the stuff that Paul said and the gospel of Christ destabilized that whole economic system, but it was still the economic system of the world and the rest of the world wasn't obeying the gospel. And so this was what they had to deal with, much like, dictatorships is what they had to deal with in politics and any number of things like that. Um, but here he speaks less to the, the people who are the masters and those who are actually the slaves. So, I mean, I, I'm, there's probably some other good setup things we should say before we talk briefly about this. Um, is, am I forgetting something else just as far as kind of clarifications that we should say about the slavery system? No, not that I know of. Um, I think you said it, said it well. So, I mean, basically to me, the key is the second part of verse one, the way that the slaves were supposed to live in relation to their, let's just say their working relationships was to do it in such a way that the name of God and teaching may not be reviled. Right. Live in a way that people see that you're different, that you're not, you're not somebody like the world, you know, 
And that same applied for those who were the masters. We see that in Colossians chapter four and Ephesians chapter uh, six and in, and in the book of Philemon and in Titus chapter two. I mean, this is just a repeated uh, refrain. Act differently, man. Don't be disrespectful. Don't be selfish. Don't be insubordinate to your boss in our vernacular. Work hard, be honest, have integrity, do your job. And in that way, demonstrate that you're not really worried about what you get out of life, but about what you can give. Yeah. And I think certainly the gospel is a gospel of freedom, right? It's a gospel that sets us free from sin and from death. And I think there might be a temptation to say, if you're a new Christian who's come to faith and, and, and experienced the truth of the freedom that comes from knowing the gospel, there might be a temptation to say, oh, well, I'm free from submitting to the government and I'm free from submitting to my master and I'm free from uh, my relationship with my spouse, who's kind of a pain to be with anyways, like, and all these sorts of things. And so there's kind of these instructions throughout the New Testament that, that temper that to say, hey, you're, you've been set free by the gospel. Now use your freedom to, 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 to out of love, serve the people that you're around. So just because you've been set free by the gospel doesn't mean that you should abandon your master who you've committed and agreed to work for um, to pay off of your debt. You know, you need to submit to him and continue to finish uh, what you have committed to the time that you've committed to serve that person. Uh, Paul would give similar instructions for people who are married. Just because your spouse is not a Christian and they're not always acting in godly ways is no excuse to walk out on them. Um, just because the government is ungodly is no excuse to be, um, you know, to, to, to join the militia that that's, uh, rebelling against them. You know, um, you be submissive. And again, coming back to what you said, so that the doctrine doesn't get spoken against so that your conduct is honorable in a way that helps them to realize there's something different about this person. And it gives you an opportunity to show, shine the light of Christ into the life of the master, now, if you weren't concerned about the master's uh, salvation, or if you weren't concerned about the reputation of the or, or, or the salvation of the people in the household, then maybe it wouldn't matter. Maybe you could, you know, run off and do that. But no, we're our focus is on pleasing the Lord and bringing about the salvation of others. Therefore, we're not going to do things that actually cause would cause somebody to dishonor Christ or dishonor uh, His name. So, yeah. and I can imagine it might have been especially tricky. I'm a Christian. Maybe, maybe I converted my master, you know, maybe I was so godly. That's why my master became a Christian or the flip it around. Like my master was a Christian and he was talking about the gospel and I was baptized, whatever. But that'd be weird, you know, like, Hey man, we're brothers. Like, what do you think about maybe, you know, the last five years of my debt, just adios. Like why not? And maybe the master, he didn't have, he wasn't obligated to do that. Or maybe he couldn't for some reason. I don't know how that stuff would have worked out. That might have been kind of complicated. Paul says, hey, man, you guys should live together and work together in a way that you're demonstrating something that's unique about you, that right. you are brothers, he says. I mean, here he's speaking to the scenario of people whose masters are Christians and the servants are Christians. He says, hey, y'all need to live as brothers, man. You're not really masters and slaves. You're brothers in Christ, and you need to live like it. And in that way, you bear witness to the power of the gospel. Just like people in a church, they're not a part of some political organization and, uh, you know, kind of a power grabbing kind of thing. The leaders, they're respected by the people that are underneath them. And, and the leaders are also held accountable by the people underneath them, except with fairness and integrity. It seems really complex, but actually whenever we follow the word of God and live in love, 
all these situations, like how we're supposed to treat elders and how elders are supposed to act whenever they do wrong. And do we, do we, uh, all this kind of stuff. And what about masters and servants, all that kind of thing. It gets a lot simpler. We right. just say, Hey, I'm going to follow what the word of God says, and I'm going to love others way more than I love myself because I love God with everything that I've got. Yeah. It cleans it all up. It makes it all a lot simpler. Amen. I think that's, um, I think that's probably a good enough place to stop. We didn't get down all the way to verse five, but those verses kind of go with the next section anyway. So we can save that for, uh, for next time. You got anything else before we, uh, before we kind of wrap this thing up? No, I think that's good, man. It's good. I, I think just ending on that exhortation of whatever, in whatever situation I'm in, in life, I want to be careful that my conduct, whether it's at home, in the neighborhood, on the job, in whatever circumstance, my conduct is not going to, is not going to lead someone to speak against the gospel of Christ. I want to conduct myself in a way that's going to give people every opportunity to submit to Christ as Lord. And of course, there are going to be many who hate me for that. There are going to be many who are going to say evil things about me for the things I've done. But if I can live in such a way, um, it will lead to the, to the conversion of many. It will lead to many people coming to see God and glorify God as a result of them. Amen. And even the times when I'm stressed out about it, I'm catching some ulcers from it, I'm worried all about it. Amen. Just keep doing what the word of God says. Keep living in love. All the other stuff's going to, it's going to come out. It's going to be all right. One way or the other. All right. Well, thanks everybody. This was cool. This was, um, I would say this was fun. It was fun, but this is a, this is a tough little section of scripture and there's a lot to, to chew on. So as always, we know that we may misstep in things that we say. Um, and so we're really happy for anybody to reach out and correct us, you know, let us know what you think we missed, um, what we need to hear, whatever. We're really eager for that. Also, if you have a question, whether something about the text or just something about your own life in the Lord and you want some help, we're here for that, whatever we can do. Um, and if we don't respond on the first message, actually just today, we overlooked somebody over this holiday the break and travels and all that. We missed somebody. So apologies for that. Um, reach out to us a second time. It's not going to bother us. We're not trying to ignore you. Um, we just made a mistake on that. So uh, let us know. We want to be here to help as much as we can. And uh, we really appreciate everybody's good participation. This is really encouraging for us. And we think it's encouraging for everybody who participates in these things, even while we're doing it online like this, uh, sharing audios and videos and all that kind of stuff. Hopefully we're helping each other out as we try to serve the Lord together. Amen. All right, Lord willing, we'll see y'all next time. Stay well in the Lord. God bless. The aim of The Way BK is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ across Brooklyn and beyond. For more information or to contact us, please visit www.thewaybk.com.